Okay, coming up, bonus episode. This was me on uh, Joe Jaffe's Corona TV show. Joe does it every day without fail. Um, he's running a South by Southwest panel picker, which you can join in where he's going to talk about the story of sort of reinventing himself through uh, Corona TV. Um, you should, I, I'm guessing most people will know um, who Joe is. Um, I think he was the second person I ever followed on Twitter back in 2007. Uh, author of a number of books, uh, sort of podcasting pioneer back in the day. Anyway, Corona TV every day, 2 p.m. Eastern time, if if, uh, if you're in the U.S. That was five in the morning for me uh, But when I was on. Hopefully I was uh, coherent. Um, Jaffe Just TV is where you can find out all the information uh, about that. Joe is a South African in New York area, also a Tottenham Hotspur fan. What we didn't get onto uh, in the show was the long-standing alliance between Aberdeen FC and Tottenham. Uh, you can Google that if you want to find the history of that or the myth and legend of that. I'm not sure what the real story is. Anyway, bonus episode, Corona TV. Uh, with uh, Joe Jaffe and myself. This is a mouthful, but, you know, he is a mouthful in the best possible way. After unsuccessful attempts at neo-expressionist painting, punk rock stardom, and later acid house DJ superstardom, although he did achieve one global techno house hit in the mid-90s, Ian finally turned to advertising as a last gasp creative outlet. Initially, and equally unsuccessfully, as a creative director, he eventually found his calling in planning and strategy, close to home as far as I'm concerned. Ian's 20-year advertising career includes multi-award-winning spells at Weapon 7 in London and Clemenger BBDO in Melbourne. He's widely regarded as an ad industry authority on consumer psychology and is author of two books, Where Did It All Go Wrong? from 2018 and Shot by Both Sides in January 2020. Ian is now the founder and principal of Art Science Technology an applied evolutionary psychology business consulting firm working with global clients out of Melbourne, Australia. It is a mouthful, but as I said, he is a mouthful, and I hope he doesn't give me a mouthful. Let's see. Welcome, Ian. Hi, Joe. How are you? Thanks very much for having me on. Um, I'm doing my best to be awake. I've, I was going to um, I know some of your other guests prepare a video. You know, I was going to do one of my uh, my morning routine. You know, so you could see me having a cold shower and eating some doji berries. You know, as I do every day, of course. Yeah, doji berries. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm glad. I'm glad that we didn't actually watch you having a shower in the morning. Um, <laughs> or uh, you know, these days I think uh, there's a new uh, there's a new insertion in Miriam's Webster dictionary called. Uh, taking a tubin or having a tubin, so right. I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad we're not doing any of those things. But yeah. I, I'm listen. I, I'm impressed with you. It's five o'clock in the morning. I said to you, do you want to like maybe move the show or do you want to do it like a little yeah. bit later? And you're like, no, I'm good. I'm good. 
Um, but it turns out you get up at this time every morning. Well, yeah, I'm, sometimes I'm awake. Uh, you know, to be fair, I did ask to move it, and uh, but you ignored that request. So, <laughs> yeah, no, that is so not true. That is so not true. <laughs> Remember, this is my show, so I can do oh, things. Okay. I can, I can mute you. I can even, you know, I can even belittle you by literally minimizing you. Look how tiny <laughs> you are right now. Actually, okay, you know, I, I can sort of fill the fill the, that small. No, bit no, no. Of, don't worry. Yeah. I will make you the hero, the hero position. Well, yeah. let's let's get to know you a little bit and find sure. out some fun facts about you, which again are like just mouthful facts, but I love them as well. So, so here's here's the first one. Um, are, are you ready for the story? Right? <laughs> like, would you, would you like? You know, so according to Ian, he was the world's least convincing cross crossing DJ in around 1994. I mean, this speaks yeah. to your, you know, this speaks to uh, your career before advertising. So, you know, talk, um, maybe maybe give us a highlight of this time in your life. Well, I guess, I, I mean, the, the, the story goes, I was, a, um, you know, I was at art school uh, in Scotland. And then around about, I think, when I was graduating, 1988 or something, we went on a, on a trip to, uh, to London. And, uh, and that was where I sort of encountered the kind of nascent acid house scene there, and we sort of, you know, took it took it back up the road uh, to Scotland, and uh, and that's what I did for for a number of years after leaving art school. I, you know, just uh, I was a club DJ full time, but uh, there was a little period about um, uh, 1994 where there was a sort of trend for kind of drag type DJs, right? And so for those of us that just dressed in you know, in our ordinary clothes, it was it was difficult to get bookings. Uh, so um, the, uh, one one of the guys who I used to DJ with, they said, uh, or the the promoters of one of the clubs that we do, say, right, you two, you're getting you're getting dressed up this weekend, and we're going to bill you as these uh, you know drag queen DJs from San Francisco or something. Um, now Paul, who I DJed with, he was a kind of little guy that was skinny, you know, with long hair and stuff, reasonably convincing. I didn't have the beard at the time, but I might as well have had because uh, it was just, it was a, a horrendous uh, sight. And there is, it's funny because when you put up the photograph, that's not far off what it actually looked like. <laughs> well, uh, it's really not far off. It's, it's an accurate photo. I got it. Yeah. I, I, Google, Google doesn't lie. Google and yeah. Photoshop do not lie. Um, mm -hmm. So the, the, the 1101 experiment says, top of the morning, Ian, go easy. Uh, and I, and Steve Garfield says this is hilarious. Uh, John Burkhardt says hello, Joseph. Love the backdrop. Are those Liverpool fans? And now cross-dressing, I'm hooked. Um, no, those are Aberdeen fans. Those are all yeah, Aberdeen yeah. fans. Because Ian supports. Exactly. All right. So now, now. Can, let's... Uh, by the way, I can reveal the the 101 experiment. I happen to know that that is Paul, so we can refer to him by his. Uh... But so. by by his and an, another another Aussie up nice and early, right? He's a, he's actually he's uh, he's American. I can't remember where he is. He'll maybe tell us. It's somewhere in the Midwest, I think. And he's a Manchester oh, okay. United, he's a Manchester United supporter and a big Led Zeppelin fan. I happen to know. All right, so so we we've got music, we've got football. I love it. All right, so so are you ready for are you ready for this one? Okay, so. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, this is this is crazy, right? You asked Bill Drummond of KLF uh, to write a blurb for the cover of your book, 
yeah. then he wrote you a play instead, <laughs> which you put into the middle of the book. Moral mm. of the story, sometimes if you ask, you get, and you get more than you ever bargained for. I love this story. Tell us about the story. Well, uh, there was a little piece in, the, you know, so I'd done the book and I thought, who can I get to blur the cover? And uh, there's, a, there's a little piece in the book where I, um, I sort of speculate about the end of pop music as a cultural force. And I sort of plotted the date at around about 1994 uh, when that ceased uh, uh, to be. Now, that kind of coincides with, um, uh, this might not mean much to American uh, Viewers, but uh, there's a there was a bit. There used to be a big TV music event which was called the Brit Awards, uh, and that was uh, a, a bit like uh, uh, what's the what's the music equivalent of like the Oscars or something in America? They have one, probably the they? Grammys. I would say Gram- probably the Grammys. Grammys. Yeah, it's like Grammys, and uh, so uh, KLF were the biggest band in the land at the time, and and so they were receiving the award for best act. And they were going to close out those out though by one of their hits, right? And so they, they, you know, obviously people don't know the KLF. They're sort of, you know, ambient sort of techno. Um, you know, they only really had about three songs, which they did about seventeen different times, you know. But uh, anyway, they were they were going to do three AM Eternal to close the show, but instead of doing it the uh, the regular way. Uh, they joined up with uh, Extreme Noise Terror, who are this sort of death metal uh, band, and did this extreme death metal version of it. And then Bill Drummond came out and sort of, uh, you know, shot uh, the audience with uh, a machine gun with fake bullets. And it was announced that, uh, you know, the KLF have left the, the music industry. But, but you know, so there was that sort of fact. And then I, but, and I sort of drew together a number of different points, which was basically millennials coming of age, uh, the penetration of broadband internet, you know, which led to illegal downloading uh, and then later streaming of music. And and all of that seemed to have, uh, you know, just reduced the significance of pop music in the culture. So blah, blah, blah. But anyway, there's a big chapter on that. And so when I was thinking, who can I get to blurb the book? I thought, well, I, I, I just searched for Bill Drummond online found his email address uh, and sent him and said can you write a couple of words and about three days later he came back and he'd written this play which is basically uh, set on the top of a bus uh, going through uh, going through Clapham in London and it's a discussion about uh, about me and the previous book which I don't know how he knew about and everything so uh, and I thought well I can't put this on the cover and I thought well I don't want to just extract a piece of it or whatever so I thought sod it and uh, so I just, uh, you know, put that as a sort of guest play in the middle of the book. So that's a little bonus surprise you get when. Uh, when I love it. Yeah. And 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 by the way, Paul is in St. Louis, as we've as we've uh, figured out. Um, right. But okay. but this but the story that's so amazing, uh, Ian, is the fact that you know, as you say, if you ask, you know, you, you never know what someone's going to say. And today, you know, yeah. I, I try and instill this. Uh, in my kids as well, which is, yeah. which is just go for it. I mean, for every, look, I, I do this with my show as well. I'm going to, when I reach out to James Rollins, he's my favorite author. Um, yeah. And, I, you know, I, I almost start off when I, when I reach, when I overreach with, you're probably going to say no, but, and sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't, but yeah. you never know when someone's just going to, 
You're going to catch him in that right frame of mind, ready to write that proverbial play. And I just love the story. Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the things uh, that I often, some, you know, because sometimes I, you know, help students and do a bit of uh, tutoring and stuff like that as well. One, and, and they're always saying, you know, how do you get on in the business and everything? And uh, I always uh, quote them back from uh, Madonna, who, who summed it up. And, uh, and she said, the reason most people don't get what they want is because they don't ask for it. Um, you know, and I think that's, that's a, you know, piece of wisdom uh, from her, but, you know, for sure. What's the worst? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought you were going to quote like a virgin, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. So, so there are a couple of things that, that you wanted to chat about. And I mean, there are more than a couple of things, whatever we don't get to, we'll get to in in the after show. But this is kind of what was on your mind. And, uh, you know, any time that I have an opportunity to get inside your mind is a good day indeed. Um, So the first thing that you wanted to talk about was uh, Tottenham Hotspur 6, Manchester United 1. And I was like, what what does he want to talk about with respect to this glorious day in our history? And you know, before I even saw the the source article that you sent, which I'll which I'll display in a moment, um, I think it's interesting because you know I can tell you that Spurs, my team, really struggles to beat Manchester United at Old Trafford, which is where Man United plays. Forget about it. Our record is so awful, and for whatever reason, we just can't seem to produce at Old Trafford. And yet here we are winning uh, this game, and not just winning this game, but winning it convincingly, pulverizing United. Now, if you look in the background, you'll notice the crowd. And the crowd, in fact, is not really a crowd at all, because this is during the age of COVID. The crowd is just, you know, either just sheets of paper or material across the seats or these faux crowd. And so you sent me this article um, that actually talks about crowd and the home advantage and so i'll give you an opportunity to set this up um and then and then i'll come back uh afterwards and and while you're talking about it i'll paste the url for this article into the notes into the show notes or the comments sure well this is um this article is actually a summary of a number of different articles but um it's something i've kind of been following uh for a little while and and uh and so uh, this uh, the website this is on. I think they deal with performance and sports performance and, and talk about that. But it's about the the uh, you know how much of a factor uh, the crowd is uh, in in home advantage. You know, and, and and so I mean, just when the when the the Spurs Man United result came up, you know, I remember looking. at it, I think no, that's that must be a typo or a mistake. It must have been one nil. So, but no, but one six, and you think that was? Uh, I mean, as Joe said, you know, Spurs not had a great record at Old Trafford, although that doesn't necessarily mean anything because anything can happen a one-off game. But it did get me thinking about, uh, you know, to go back and look at some of this data about how much uh, influence the environment has on performance. Right now, we're talking about football. And there's all there's all kinds of factors uh, which get described. People can read the article after, but density of crowd, for instance, the number of away supporters uh, as well can can be a factor. So you know, I know as 
well, when I was still in Scotland, you know, when Aberdeen, when we used to go to Celtic or Rangers, uh, the away supporters were given hardly any tickets. They have massive 60,000 seater stadiums and we get a thousand seats, you know, whereas when they came up to Aberdeen uh, with only a 20,000 seater stadium, they would get three or 4,000. Uh, and so, you know, there's all these sort of environmental factors that, that, contribute and I just wondered mm. that if at the end at the end of this season you know we we need to have a look back and see where are those kind of freakish results uh that have happened and you know really the the uh how much taking away the crowd has really changed the nature of, of the game now that's all very interesting from a sort of football point of view but then I you know I put my sort of professional hat on and I thought well of course Right, because behavior change 101 is you know the first thing you look at if you if there's behavior going so this is in the workplace or consumer behavior or anything is you want to change that behavior then the first thing you look at is modifying the environment in which the behavior occurs you right. know so you know and because uh, I, I do get a little bit um the, there's obviously the fad nowadays for unconscious bias training and all these you know blah blah blah. but you know i think that's um just look at look at the environment if there's bad behaviors going on in a in the workplace you know look at the environment you know make changes to the environment um there's all kinds of environmental things that can be done if we want to promote women for instance into leadership uh, positions then we can change the working environment to make that more attractive or you know to to suit those traits you know so it's kind of um yeah i just uh you know i think uh the the lesson uh, for me is, is always is looking around at uh you know particularly in this uh covid sort of situation you know people are quick to say well consumer behavior is going to be changed forever you know, maybe it will. I think it's a bit soon to be making those calls. Uh, but one thing is for sure that the environment, you know, has changed and we're, we're biological creatures subject to natural selection, environmental forces shape, you know, how, uh, how we respond. So, um, yeah, so that was, you know, uh, how a, a sort of freak Spurs victory prompted quite a lot of uh, or maybe maybe <laughs> not maybe not but, but, <laughs> but you know so so I'll come back to I'll come back to that in a moment what was interesting is that there were a couple of other things that were also spoken about uh in the article and one of them yeah. for example is what happens when the home fans turn against the home team so booze right. that were less than 15 seconds or booze that lasted for longer than 15 seconds and so uh, it also spoke about antisocial behavior. So there's yeah. also the behavior of the home fans. But but really, you know, the, the questions asked, the hypotheses were, why do teams lose away from home? And, yeah. and, and, and what is it, this concept of a fortress? You know, mm -hmm. they say, oh, you know, like, good luck, you're going to the fortress. You know, nobody mm -hmm. ever wins at the fortress. And, and I think there, there's so many interesting psychological, um, you know, aspects of the story in play one is how do you create your own fortress whether that's your your even your cubicle at work or what is it what is it to create or emulate home field advantage in in other aspects of our lives right 
to yeah. your point at work as well, or even what your home office looks like mm. when you're not able to go to work. And mm. then the other one is, is I think the effect and impact of now being away from home, right? Spurs played Burnley yesterday and they struggled and they, yeah. you know, grinded out a one nil victory, which probably would have been the same result had the fans been there. So there was something interesting else at play as well, even if it's just the the psychological aspect of just perceiving, maybe it's even bad memories, right? You have trauma yeah. Of, yeah. of past visitations, right? The mm. swirling wind, the cold, you know, uh, dressing room where there's no ventilation or air conditioning or heat or whatever. I wonder what you think about, uh, about you know, that aspect of home field versus away when it comes to the psychology in play. Yeah, well, I have heard um, there was, um, oh, um, what's the guy's name? I can't remember. He, he wrote a book uh, that I read recently. I can't remember his name, but the book's called Junk Tank Pink. And the, uh, the, the premise is that, um, that what was discovered was uh, the, uh, in a police department precinct in New York that was getting uh, renovated, the, uh, the painters had been in and painted the cells with um, a pink undercoat. Uh, but they hadn't finished painting it, uh, and the and the cops noticed that when they brought in drunks, uh, you know, uh, to lock them up uh, at night, the drunks that got put in the cells that were pink uh, seemed to calm down a lot quicker than the ones that were put in the grey cells. Uh, and so, so a police psychologist noticed this, and then they did some experiments and everything. And, it, and then, you know, it seems to be a, a logic that that pink uh, does... Um, have a calming effect under certain circumstances. And I have heard that some uh, some football clubs have done that to the away dressing room. You know, so you know, sports psychology is a big part of football now. So you know, they're they're doing all these little psychological tricks as well. So even, you know, I guess it's anything to get that home uh, advantage. You know, or the away dressing room might be slightly smaller. Uh, you know, making them come out last uh, or whatever. So no, absolutely correct. But that, um, you know, but the I, get, I mean, the thrust of the article is how important the crowd is, you know, and, and you know, for us that are football fans, you know, it's mm. kind of, uh, you know, getting crowds back into even watching it on TV is not the same, you know, that, um, you know, when you can just hear that echoey, uh, echoey sound. So I don't know what it's what it's like uh, for the for the players, you know. Yeah. No, I, that, no, I was going to say that I, I had this interesting uh, observation, which is realizing that the people in the stands are actually not there for themselves. They're there for us watching at yeah. home. Yeah. Um, and and the game feels so different without them in the stands. And, yeah. you know, I always used to feel, I always used to think um, you're so lucky to be at the game. You're so lucky you got to go to the final. Um, mm. But what I realized is the real lucky people are the ones at home you know, sitting warm, not in the pouring rain, you know, having yeah. their popcorn or doing, having their beers, et cetera, without yeah. overpaying for it. And and it's all for us at home. It yeah. actually is just part of the overall experience and atmosphere. But it was like a real introspective moment to realize yeah. the connection between someone sitting at home and someone in the stands and how they actually are there for each other. Yeah. But even, you know, it's, uh, I remember, um, you know, it's not, I mean, in the article, obviously they talk about football, but it looks at all kinds of other sports as well. 
uh, you know, uh, and even even in things like boxing, you know, for instance, which is a lot, which is scored. Um, uh, the, uh, I guess it's scored just as uh, is is more subjective scoring than objective, right? Because it's not goals uh, or things, but the but the crowd can even influence that. But even uh, you know, I remember back in like uh, going to see uh, uh, just uh, someone mentioned Oasis in the uh, in, in the comments coming up. So I remember going to see Oasis live, uh, and uh, th- it, it was a similar thing. It was just four guys stood on the stage playing guitars. Nobody moved or did anything. You know, so objectively looking at it, it was the most boring. Show. You know, it wasn't Van Halen. You know, there was no pyrotechnics or anything. All the action was in the crowd. You know, all of the excitement of that concert was being in the crowd with everyone else. And what was happening on the stage was almost incidental, you know, and uh, uh, there's an element of that in, in football as well. Mm, I, I love that final point there because um, the fact is when you look at a lot of the bands from the 60s, you know, whether it's, yeah. you know, looking looking at even the Beatles or the Monkees or whatever the case may be, they would generally, they look kind of like they could have been accountants, you know, yeah. wearing suits. They didn't really do much on stage. And to your point, yeah. it really was all about, you know, the young uh, teenage girls, you know, swooning, fainting, yeah. um, everything happening in the mosh pit. But I, I love that little bit of insight. By the way, David Cushman is here and he said, uh, how are you? Uh, we'll catch you another time. Um, Hello, David. And and Jan, who you'll probably meet in the after show, he said the environment may be the human being, your teammates right there beside you, wherever you are. So there's no question that, that people are inextricably part of that animate environment. Yeah. Um, all right. So now let's move on to topic mm. number two, which is, which is like, I was like, blah, 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 like my, 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 my mind, I was like, what you, quit playing games with me, uh, uh-huh. Ian, you, you evil person, you. Um, uh-huh. So you, you wrote this article. Oh, uh, and I should say, let, let's go back because the quote of the day, I should, I should, uh, I should just show this to you right now because uh, otherwise the, the time will not be appropriate. So the quote of the day um, actually talks about home field advantage and it, and it says there is only one possible time when home field advantage is not, in fact, a good thing. Do you know what that time is or, or that one use case? Uh, yeah. All right. So I am I'm going to show you the quote uh, okay. and then we can figure out who said the quote. Okay. War is the only game in which it doesn't pay uh, to have the yeah. home court advantage. Um, okay. And and that was uh, an author by the name of Dick Mata. Um, so oh, okay. I just thought yeah. I just thought that was an interesting one uh, yeah. for you for you as well. Yeah. All right, but let let's get into uh, the second topic. Um, and you wrote this article in Air News called uh, "What Does It All Mean?" And I mean, listen, I I don't even know where to start with this one. Um, but but I'll tell you where I'd like to start, and then I'll let you take it away. Okay. We're gonna we're gonna start off with uh, with uh, above me is is the fluke, which is this tiny bug, this parasitic bug that actually you know takes over ants, and then it and then what it does is, if I understand correctly, let me figure out if there's a way to show people this. Let let me uh, let me take you let, let let me take both of us out for just one second. 
<laughs> All right. So, so I brought us back there as well. So this fluke, what it does is it actually mind controls. It takes over an ant and then it kind of remote controls the ant and marches the ant to basically be eaten and, and slaughtered. And the reason why it does that is because once this bug now is ingested into another system, that's when the eggs, it's, it's so gross. It's awesomely yeah. gross. What the hell does the fluke bug have to do with memes? <laughs> well, it's, um, so memes, obviously. So first of all, I mean, this is, this is, whenever I talk about memes, you know, it's important to remember internet memes, you know, as, which most people understand as memes. So, you know, funny pictures with captions and, things like that that is one type of meme but uh, uh, a meme um so the i mean the actual uh the the word meme was coined by richard dawkins in uh in his book the selfish gene uh, as uh, another kind of replicator so if genes are the units of biological uh re replication then memes are ideas that replicate so the first the first memes would be things like uh you know so language is an early meme so it it's copied from one mind to another use of tools uh you know in early humans but of course now um we uh you know we're surrounded by cult cultural uh memes uh all the time but I, but um what when, when you look at ideas and you can see the prevalence of of bad ideas, ideas, you know, particularly in marketing. So ideas that become popular in marketing departments that are actually detrimental uh, to the brands that, uh, you know, that these people are supposed to be supporting. And you think, well, why, why would that be? Why would these bad ideas, uh, you know, propagate throughout populations? And that's why I thought that Ant analogy was quite good because the, the the fluke which is the parasite gets into the ant's brain takes control of the organism and forces it to do things for its own that's for its own reproductive uh, benefit um and i guess what if you know you know we think that ideas you know come from human minds but if memes are actually their own replicators you know they <laughs> then we are simply vehicles for their own propagation uh just like just like the ant you know and um and then you know what, what you know once you think of that it's it's kind of um i think it's interesting to see i've uh, i've been listening uh, recently to uh, some people talking about um you know uh one of the things we talk about when looking at applied evolutionary psychologies, a lot, a lot of the problems in the in the sort of modern world are to do with uh, mismatch, right? Where our evolved psychology is behind uh, where the culture has evolved to, and that causes us problems. Behavioral economics people will call that uh, call them biases, uh, but they're really just they're not failures of rationality. Uh, it's just uh, they're actually uh, adaptive. They're uh, features not flaws but the environment has changed and so uh, because biological evolution is very slow and cultural evolution is very fast uh, because i don't know why i'm telling you this because obviously you're riding on the 21st century hms beagle 
Uh, so, so and I'm in okay. the matrix, and and as you can see in the background, I'm in the matrix right now. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm finding yeah. out how yeah. we're being mind controlled by TikTok. Yeah. Well, I'll get to TikTok in a minute because I think that's uh, um, you know. So if if you sort of you know, if you're going to buy that premise, right, that the ideas have their own agenda and we're just vehicles for their transmission, right? Um, and uh, and uh, neuroscientists are talking now about what modifications can be actually made to the neural networks within human minds, you know, to speed up our mental evolution to cope with uh, the environment. But that's another story. But um, you know, just so I'd written that article uh, a, a few weeks ago, a month ago, or something, and then when the uh, the dude that did the Fleetwood Mac Ocean Spray. Yeah. Then, then that that came up, and I thought, well, that's that's interesting because that's a little meme plex there that's kind of uh, that's evolved under its own steam, right? Well, so the lip syncing on TikTok, you know, that's a standard TikTok. So, so let me thing. let me t interrupt uh, you for a second, and I just right. uh, I'm going to read to you these are verbatims from your own article that talk right. about that talk about these um, definitions. Uh, strength can be found in numbers, and so groups of interacting memes like political philosophies, religions, and brands, of course, are sometimes called meme plexes. They yeah. contain multiple sub-memes, and then, of course, Dawkins refers to memes also as mind viruses. Uh, so carry on. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, so um, a meme plex would be if you think about a brand like strong strong bands have uh, uh will, will uh um if you think about category entry points right so so if you think about coca-cola if you see the um uh, you know coca-cola sort of brand book you can open it up there's a big double page spread that opens out into four and it shows you all of the associations that coca-cola wants to make right so it's everything from you know cinema to burgers to whiskey and coke rum and coke uh, and there's even things in there like asparagus and uh, you know and salad and everything because they're trying to make these healthy associations and so the stronger the brand is the more associations it has so that uh, that's creating the sort of meme plex it's a cluster of memes healthy eating is one meme but if you can attach that to Coke and healthy eating, you know. So this this is the this is the purpose in branding of building up uh, associations to to create those strong meme plexes, you know. Um, it, interestingly, you know, looking at religion, uh, so uh, you know the religions that are sort of uh, in uh, in the world that are uh, falling in numbers of adherents and. Uh, um, tend to be the ones with the least uh, rituals. All right, so your bog standard sort of Christianity, which basically says turn up on a Sunday, and that's it. You know, there's there's less commitment required of the uh, uh, of the users, whereas the ones where with with more rituals and more custom and more thing, those become more popular because there's 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 more things you know connected together. Interesting, but, but um, sorry, what and uh, well, I was gonna, I mean, we'll we'll come back to it in a second. Let yeah. me let me see if I can um share with us the uh, that ocean spray uh, TikTok 
Uh, let me see if I can play that. There we go. Let's let's play that for a second. So I'm probably okay. doing it so that I so that I don't get dinged on copyright, although I probably will have already. Right. But so you've got this guy, you know, I don't know mm. what he's on, skating on a scooter, and he's drinking, and he's drinking ocean spray uh, mm. from you know from from the bottle or from the you know, and and so so take that and and just give us some you know some context because I think one of the things that you'd said was you know this is all happening within TikTok, right? The yeah. primordial soup of internet memes and maybe about to cause a bigger disruption in branding than the doubters anticipate. And it's an unexpected twist. So talk about what does that mean? Okay, well, uh, first of all, what, what, if you look at uh, TikTok, when I talk about primordial soup, right? So, I mean, that's that kind of it's it it talks to uh, the sort of the origins of of life right so we had this sort of empty planet some meteors hit a few com chemical things happened and then life started to uh, you know uh, progress from there but um it's always from a cultural point of view the the idea that uh that what eventually becomes mainstream uh is happening out on the on the fringes, right? And there's always been, you know, organizations have always had trend spotters that get sent out at the weekends to find out what sneakers are being worn, what music's being worn. But it's kind of, that's been a sort of difficult anthropological exercise. But but TikTok, it strikes me, is uh, has, has opened that up. It's a gateway into that sort of bubbling primordial soup of ideas that's happening out on the on the fringes and it's it's hard to predict what's going to come through to the mainstream but you can you can see it going on going on there and we can you know we can see things coming through easier so i think you know people are talking about there's a lot of eyeballs on tiktok and it's a, it's a great advertising medium i'm not sure it is but i think it's a fantastic uh insight and research uh medium but, but the, it it, it it would almost seem that TikTok is the 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 quintessential memeplex. Yeah. Um, it, it's not even it's it's the it's the mega store. It's the mall of the Americas. It's the yeah. it's so giant and but also the mechanisms are just designed to propagate and allow the sharing, the duets, yeah. the everything yeah. about it is is everything about it is fluid. Everything about and, and it is designed to accelerate. And it's all about copying. So it's all about replication. That's why natural selection is a good metaphor for it, you know, because, you know, the basic premise of it is challenge, challenges, uh, which, and people do their own version, you know. Imitation and, is the sincerest Im imitation. form of, of flattery. Um, yeah. And and I and I think that's what you know that's what you basically uh, had basically said. Um, what, what was also interesting in this article, I mean, you 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 come up with a very I think provocative uh, political uh, uh, example um, in terms of um, in terms of white supremacy versus white privilege. Um, but but I think I'll just read you know to you one more thing, which which I thought was interesting. Um, uh, 
just another verbatim. And you said, um, viewed from the perspective, minds and by extension, mobile devices and cloud data warehouses are survival machines for memes. Mechanisms for data in the primordial soup of human culture attempting to transmit themselves into future generations. It's That's why I put up the matrix in the back. It is frightening and fascinating that that all of these uh, technologies, it makes me think of Elon Musk, you know, referring mm. to AI as, as the ultimate demon that will destroy culture and society. Would, would you agree with yeah. that or would, you, or would you argue against it? it I would, uh, to some extent, agree because I think uh, artificial intelligence, you know, as opposed to what, you know, what is human intelligence is, you know, it's kind of, you know, uh, philosopher Daniel Dennett says it's robots all the way down, right? We're, we're, we are robots and inside our mind, there are lots of little robots and inside them are other little robots. So if that, if that, you know, carbon based robot system is capable of producing consciousness and intelligence, um, there's nothing, uh, then, you know, why would, uh, uh, a silicon-based system not be capable of, and uh, I think the you know the potentially the 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 worry is that you know as we said biological evolution is quite slow, but as we've seen technological and uh, uh, cultural evolution you know goes very fast, so we might not have to wait for thousands or you know the time it takes for thousands of generations of a software-type intelligence to evolve might be a lot shorter. I mean, we're we're seeing it as we move yeah. towards the singularity. But you know, yeah. the, the one thing, as a final point, um, and then I want to talk about your new book. Um, it seems like the real enemy, uh, or at least the real battle, going back to that, and let's hope it's not on our home court advantage, is striving to be original. Mm. And and I think there's a place and a time for imitation and for mindless forwards and swipes and and duets and whatever the case may be. But it's the fight and it is a battle royale for us to create original ideas that yeah. are that are meme proof. But even if they aren't, just just still that is a victory in of itself, just mm. the ability to be original. And mm. that I feel is how we counter this, you know, this this uh, scenario, this doomsday scenario from coming true? Hmm. I think, I mean, creativity, you know, itself, you know, it's kind of re recombination. So there's always that element of, uh, you know, of, um, uh, you know, of copying, you know, from somewhere. But it's, you know, the things that we find interesting, creative, when, is when you pull things together and juxtapose things that you maybe wouldn't expect uh, to go together. But the, but the the point I wanted to make about um, about the Fleetwood Mac TikTok guy was uh, I happened to to notice there was um, a little uh, so uh, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk is always quick to jump on these things and he he tracked down this guy and it turns out that the guy that did the uh, um, that, that did that video is is a big Gary V fan and follows his credo to the letter right produces lots and lots of content and everything and i mm. thought hang on a minute hang on a minute i thought this is the flip this is what's what's changed because 
you know, brands, historically, brands typically go into culture and co-opt pieces of culture and try, you know, to bring that into advertising and marketing. But now, now it's changed. Now, with the explicit purpose of gaining fame for themselves, this is what the TikTok users are up to. They will co-opt you know, songs or brands, ocean spray to, you know, to help bring attention to themselves. And I thought that's, that's a really interesting development because that's not how marketers are thinking about, about the platform. <laughs> you know? So yeah. market marketers are being marketers are being gamed. Marketers yeah. are being gamed because what's happening is the way it used to be 10 years ago, 15 years ago, maybe when we even first connected, yeah. it was serendipity and it was just these, random consumer acts yeah. but i think yeah. what you're saying is there's a very deliberate play going on here yeah. and of course you know ocean spray woke up going we hit the proverbial jackpot let's yeah. issue the blank check you know yeah. to to but but they're being played i mean yeah. would it even let's would it even be inconceivable uh that you know gary v is on retainer with this guy or or yeah. uh you know, or the yeah. or the guys on retainer it could work both know. ways. Yeah, maybe maybe he's he's signed him up. Yeah, I mean, I guess the proof of the pudding will be if the if this guy can come up with something else. You know, he got his truck out of it. So, you know, interesting. So well done. I love but, that. I I, ne yeah. I never expected us to go in that direction, but that's yeah. why uh, yeah. I love I love Corona TV. Yeah. Uh, all right, so now when when you're not uh, writing uh, conspiracy meme articles, I'm just kidding. It's not that at all. Mm -hmm. um, you uh, you wrote uh, you've written two books, yeah. and uh, and I would love to use the time that we have left today uh, for mm -hmm. you to be able to talk about them. Um, so the the new book is called uh, Shot by Both Sides, and and I'll paste a link to uh, to the book on Amazon. Uh, talk a little bit about this book, and then I'll also just briefly highlight your earlier book uh, before we yeah. go sure well this this is the the most recent one it was um i um i i have to talk about both books together really because this one was almost a sort of the complete opposite of of the of the first one but i got interested in the sort of nature of uh what you might call postmodern advertising uh, and, I, and i wanted and i wanted to sort of really find the lineage of, of how we how we got to that so by postmodern um it's uh, you know what you would call self reflexive sort of knowing advertising right it kind of uh, um it it comments on itself you know and the, and and i thought that, and, but there's also the the sort of um, that's best exemplified by brands like brewdog uh, oatly uh, this is one, you know, so it's very self-deprecating. But then the other side of postmodern advertising is the highly personalised, data-driven surveillance-type advertising. But but uh, but it struck me as a weird contradiction that what we see, what seems to be the most technologically advanced form of advertising, has more in common with the sort of pre-creative revolution. Rosser Reeves type advertising of the of the of the fifties, you know, and I thought, well, that's and that's so that's a contradiction at, at the heart of of uh, uh, of the technological advertising. Whereas the the big dumb advertising is um, 
you know, you look at you look at, uh, at, at ads for, or even uh, a lot of what Nike does now when they're when they're making a sort of statement about a social issue. There's no products in there. There's no benefits. There's no features. There's no price. There's not even a. Uh, there's barely any branding, you know. And it just strikes me as being that you know. I thought, what? How did we get to there? And so, because I'd been at art school and I was interested in the history of art, I thought actually I can draw a line from the likes of Marcel Duchamp and the Fountain, uh, um, you know, all the way through to um, to people like Banksy, and then. Uh, into this, this sort of new form of uh, of advertising, which is, uh, as I say, it's sort of postmodern in nature, also relies very much on news media to report on it, uh, uh, for its reach. So, yeah, so I was kind of like looking to the past, you know, up to the present day and trying to sort of project a little bit, uh, you know, into the future with that one. But, uh, but the first book, you know, and then, uh, uh, viewers should know that uh, uh, Jill, probably you're partly responsible for uh, uh, for that one <laughs> because uh, it was a kind of reflection on uh, all of the uh, I know the show is supposed to be about optimism and positivity right, so I'm going to give you some you know, but back, back in the sort of uh, <laughs> Dig deep Yeah, but back in the day I remember because uh, your first book i remember when someone gave me that and said you should have a read of this and that was life after the 32nd spot and it was very much part of that there was so much optimism and enthusiasm for the potential for digital media back back in in those days and i think i remember what was the sub head of the book it was energize your brand how, how, to how to energize marketing weary consumers with a power no how to energize that's how to energize your brand with a bold mix of alternatives yeah. to traditional yeah. advertising uh -huh. the, so the marketing weary was the second book but you see we're still weary well yeah, yeah but it was kind of you know so there was you know for a little while there was there was so much optimism and then and then it kind of uh it just it, it fell a little bit flat and i became sort of disillusioned with a lot of digital uh media as it was in 2016-17 when, when when that was written i think i probably cheered up a little bit since then you know particularly you know because you, you you never know how things are going to evolve but that's why you know because i'm really interested now in in some of these new platforms that are emerging and how you know that thing that we talked about how you know there's always been this notion of consumers in control um it, they're maybe in control in a different way from what we kind of thought they were going to be uh, in control, you know, particularly if brands become, uh, rather than co-opting culture, they become things that culture co-opts um, in order to promote itself, which brings us back to the memes uh, and their own agenda, of course. But, well, I think you, just, you, you well, you, you, you just, you just nailed it. And, yeah. uh, you know, and I, and I think that, um, I'm, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna have you say that again because it's worth saying again. If you can remember, if you can remember that, <laughs> I can't remember exactly what I, what I said. Uh, well, I, I, I'm t I'm time stamping this. Uh, you said uh, rather rather than than a thing where brands co-opt uh, culture. Co culture, yeah, yeah. cultures co-opting brands, yeah, for for its own for their own uh, purposes. You know, so I think that's you know, um, there's a, there's a lot of talk nowadays of whether you know brands whether there is a future for for brands you know i know um uh, 
but but I, you know, I I think I think there still is. People forget what you know. People don't just buy products, right? Uh, they definitely buy brands, and we buy brands because, um, you know, they they convey uh, signals about our own, uh, you know, personality. But uh, you know, so I think that's this becomes a little bit of a meme plex itself, you know. Of it kind does, of, right? You know, right, so, and, um, and 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 you basically you basically in that same article you said the meme itself quickly became a meme. Um, so, so I've, I've, uh, I mean, I I find this to be, uh, absolutely, uh, uh, fascinating and, um, and, and I really, really enjoyed, I think we came full circle, um, in the sense, because, you know, to me, if there is a message to take away from this, it's the fact that, you know, it's that old line, which is if, if you don't stand for anything, uh, you will fall for everything. And brands right now have to figure out what they stand for. Otherwise, mm. they will continue to be co-opted uh, by culture as opposed to influencing culture, which is what brands at their best used to be able to do. Um, mm. And 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 quite frankly, nefariously, they may they may turn out to be now co-opted and influenced by consumers with agendas because consumers mm. are not just sitting back right now saying fire hose me your messaging uh, and feed me your products. Uh, and, you know, it's almost like the matrix is turning on itself. So <laughs> I found that to be a really, really interesting twist. You did say there was a twist. You were not lying. Um, <laughs> so, Ian, yeah. we're, we're going to go and hang out a little bit. Uh, I'll give you a chance to get another cup of coffee if you need one. Um, right. But we're going to go to the uh, Zoom after show. Uh, but before we do, uh, I just want to let you know that you can follow Ian on uh, on Twitter. That's at E-A-O-N-P, the Scottish Aussie. Uh, you can find out more about his very, very smart agency, Art Science Technology. Um, and, um, and of course, you know, uh, read his book and you can go find, a, a, there's a beautiful, if you just search, you will find a really lovely um, YouTube uh, a reading that you did. By the way, I, I love the fact that this was called, uh, you know, isolated talks from home, where you did a bit of a reading. Love mm. the little spin on TED TED talks, <laughs> but in this case, not affiliated with TED, but isolated talks yeah. from home. Yeah. Uh, Ian, thank you so much. Uh, this was great, wonderful to catch up with you. Thank you for getting up early in the morning. Uh, and uh, yeah, th- thank you uh, for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, looking forward to the after show. Yeah, we're on our way and I'll be back tomorrow. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you for watching Corona TV with your host, multiple author and global keynote speaker, Joseph Jaffe. Corona TV is the show about hope, positivity, optimism, and if there's time left over, a little bit of marketing. The after show on Zoom starts right now at bit.ly slash Corona TV after show. If you like the show, tell a friend or two. Please subscribe to the show at coronatv.show. And if you want to get inside news, previews of upcoming guests, and much more, text Corona TV to 66866 or visit josephjaffe.com slash subscribe to sign up for the show's newsletter. And despite the best ministrations of your wife, you still look ugly. <laughs>